The views expressed on this show by guests and the host on issues outside of the 9-11 controlled demolition evidence are the opinions of those individuals alone and do not necessarily reflect those of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. Welcome to 9-11 Freefall. I'm the host, Andy Steele. Today, we're joined by Anil Jethwa. He is a double-chartered professional, civil and structural engineer with over 41 years of professional career experience. He currently lives in Vietnam, and he's a member of the Institution of Civil Engineers in the UK, and he's also uh, part of the UK's Institution of Structural Engineers. And he's a signatory to AE 9-11 Truth's petition calling for a new investigation into the destruction of the three towers that fell in New York on September 11th. Uh, so we're going to be learning a lot more about him today. He's a very interesting guy. Let's go ahead and add him into the stream. Anil, welcome to 9-11 Freefall. Uh, good morning or good evening, wherever you are in the world. Yeah, we are literally on opposite ends of the world right now. And uh, I think it's like a 14-hour difference for me. I'm in the mountain time zone. Of course, Arizona doesn't observe the the daylight savings time. So it's always fluctuating between Pacific and mountain here. Uh, but you're over there in Vietnam, which uh, I don't know a lot about as a country other than American history. My father was there uh, back in the 60s. Uh, he doesn't talk about that much, but maybe you'll t uh, tell us more about your experience over there. But first, uh, tell us a little bit more about your professional background. I gave a very brief overview of it, but please elaborate. Okay, so I started my career um, after graduating from Hertfordshire University in the UK uh, way back in 1979. Um, I have worked on a very wide range of projects throughout the course of just over four decades, 41 years. I recently retired at the age of 65 in October 2020, um, partway through the, the, the first year of the, the pandemic, as it were. Um, I have worked on a very from the very small projects all the way up to very large multi-billion dollar international projects ranging from uh, commercial uh, properties, uh, multi-story multi buildings, um, infrastructure, um, industrial facilities, oil and gas refineries, uh, offshore platforms, offshore wind farms, uh, and one of my specialities is, is as a marine engineer, I've worked on a number of uh, projects for nearshore uh, engineering of ports, harbors, and jetties. Um, in my earlier life, um, before the Iran-Iraq wars, uh, we designed a lot of uh, berths and terminals in, in places like Iraq, uh, which unfortunately, through, through courses of war, have now been bombed to smithereens, I'm sure. Uh, but um, 
I, I work for uh, largely for large consultants. Um, uh, for example, one of the uh, uh, the related um, fields of experience is with a company called Arab, Ove Arab and Partners. Uh, as I joined it way back in in uh, a, a long time ago in the in the early eighties, and um, with Arab, I, I um, was very fortunate to be involved in a number of projects in the city of London, um, which were very complex, uh, multi-story facilities, such as an air rights building over a major uh, terminus, uh, a railway terminus in um, uh, the city of London at Charing Cross. So that's just a, a, a brief overview. I, I can go on talking for a whole hour just on my experience, but I think that's probably enough to give uh, the people um, a, a, an appreciation of what I've achieved. And I've been very fortunate to have achieved in the course of 41 years of professional life. As I said, I'm now retired, so I've got a lot of time on my hands. And uh, what better place to be in than, than somewhere nice and warm and sunny like Vietnam? Absolutely. And you know, people, when they're talking about their passions and the work they like doing, they could probably talk for hours at a time. I'm interested to know what got you into engineering. I mean, I've heard it described that when you find out what you want to do in life, it's like a key going into a lock and turning. What drew you into the profession? Okay, so I've always been in, in, interested in science subjects at school. Uh, maths, became very easy for me, maths and the sciences. Um, and I initially, actually, before I entered university, I, I wanted to be an architect because I was always interested in, in buildings and uh, designing buildings. Um, but then I realized that I was a better uh, engineering based um, mindset than a more artistic mindset. Although I do a lot of uh, watercolors and things like that now that I've retired, but there's always been more of a passion on engineering rather than architecture. But in any case, throughout the course of my, my life, I've also worked in, in the capacity of, of a sort of pseudo architect, if you like, uh, having been involved in, in projects with multidiscipline teams. So I've had the, the the best of both worlds, to be honest. And and That's right. why I got into it, why I got into engineering, is because I I felt that I just had that knack of looking at numbers, looking at data, um, wanting to help improve um, society as a whole. That's why I got into engineering. Absolutely. I mean, ask the people in a city where uh, maybe a hurricane hits and the levees are threatened, like we saw in, uh, where was it, New Orleans several years ago. I mean, the engineers are the heroes, the people who show up on the scene and try to figure out how to keep this stuff that we take for granted. So many of us just going through our daily lives, we take it for granted, but keep this stuff functioning, keep it held up. And it fascinates me, too, because you now you go to New York City, you look at the tall buildings, and uh, I get vertigo just looking up. I don't like heights. But you look at these marvels up there, and they all start off as a creation in somebody's mind. But somebody's got to figure out how to keep these things standing. 
And uh, the engineers are the ones who do that. And they're the first ones they look to when something goes wrong. Now, your first time on the show, I ask everyone, where were you on 9-11 when you heard the news? I was actually an expat engineer working overseas in um, far off Korea, South Korea. And I was sitting in my living room late evening um, in Seoul, where I live not so far from the center of Seoul, um, actually not, not far from the presidential palace, the Blue House. Um, as with everybody else, I was watching BBC World, as it happens, because I, I'm you know, from the UK. I've always had a, more of a, an inkling towards um, watching BBC rather than American channels or, of course, at that time, I'd only just arrived in Korea a couple of months or three months prior, prior to September 11th. Uh, and so I hadn't quite got into learning the language as much. So yeah, I gravitated towards BBC World, BBC News. And uh, yeah, shock and horror, like everybody else, watching two major buildings collapse and then subsequently watching a third building collapse in front of my eyes. Um, it's, a, it's obviously a, a moment of concern for everyone. Um, the initial shock and horror of watching what appears to be a terrorist act or act of terrorism, um, what appeared to be planes flying into buildings, which is quite unusual, although as engineers, we, we designed for planes impacting buildings. In fact, the Empire, Empire State Building originally was designed, and, and I think 9-11 was also, uh, the, the buildings WTC-1 and WTC-2 were also designed for planes impacting. I myself have designed uh, projects where we've had to in incorporate terrorism um, during my engineering uh, career in the 80s, um, we had the conflicts with Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. And so we were always involved in engineering out certain terrorist acts of terrorism. For example, I, I, I was involved in designing a multi-story building with only 21 columns supporting the whole building. And one of our tasks was to design that building uh, for an impact because there was a railway underneath the building. We had to design for a terror act of terrorist terrorism of uh, say somebody deliberately knocking out one of the columns or two of the columns uh, by a, a train impact. So. We designed buildings uh, with acts of terrorism in mind as one of the, the load combinations or load cases that we had to consider and to make sure that there's sufficient redundancy built into the structure to allow it to stand. And for the, the people that were in those buildings to safely, to, to, to give them sufficient time to safely evacuate. And we do the same for buildings uh, in the event of a fire. We design 
active or passive fire resisting uh, systems. Uh, we build it redundancies to take into into account you know the possibility of certain events arising so when i was watching on tv on 9-11 um, it was very surprising to me that i saw a total building collapse because i knew that the engineers and designers would that would have designed those buildings would have done exactly what I did during my time as, as a designer and built in those redundancies. So for me, there was an initial shock and horror of seeing buildings collapse. But then there was also the other side of me, which was saying, well, this cannot happen. This is not how we as engineers design buildings. This is something different and and it didn't take me very long I, I think a matter of hours i think i slept on on or didn't really have a very nice sleep but i slept on on that um on, on those incidents eventually and then in the morning it struck me that there was something untoward happening with these buildings i couldn't quite put my finger on it but right from the get-go i realized that there was something some kind of malfeasance taking place. So that was my my snapshot of, of what I remember, what I recalled two decades ago. Yeah, well, and then when World Trade Center 7 goes down later in the day, I, 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 you may have mentioned that you saw that one, um, was not hit by an airplane. I mean, how much did that one stick in your mind after? I mean, that was yeah, several so, hours afterwards. For you, that's correct. Middle so, of the night. I did stay up until late, until uh, eventually, you know, because the next day was a, was a work day for me, so I had to go back and go into the office. But I did stay up uh, long, and in fact, it might even have been, uh, I can't quite recall the, the, the time difference between New York and Seoul, but it might have even been early morning when I obviously switched on the TV early morning to, to get the latest information on 9-11 and I was watching again I was watching BBC TV and I saw a lady reporter uh, standing in front of the the, the backdrop of, of the buildings behind and I could see clearly over her left shoulder uh, a multi-story building and she was talking about WTC 7, World Trade Center building number 7, and that it had collapsed. But about 20 or 30 minutes later, during that same broadcast, as I was watching, I saw a building collapse after he made an announcement about 20 or 30 minutes prior. And at that moment in time, I realized that there was something very sinister going on. This building was pulled down, I think, late afternoon, wasn't it? Five, six o'clock in the, in the afternoon. 520, um, yeah, exactly. Uh, without having any planes impacting on the building, without any major debris being thrown from towers one and two onto this building, and it collapsed 
what looked to me like a free fall on its own footprint. This isn't engineering. This is something of major malfeasance going on. Right. And um, this would have you believe that it was fire inside the building causing a couple of uh, beams to thermally expand and push that girder off at sea. And you actually saw this live. Jane Stanley reporting Building 7 had already collapsed and they lose the feed right before it actually does collapse. I watched it. I watched the Ashley Manfield coverage on MSNBC and it did look like a controlled demolition. I didn't think about it much on that day. It took years for a lot for people out in the scientist community initially and then architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth is created and to compile all the information and to take what people intuitively already knew, many of them, and actually show the evidence uh, that these were controlled demolitions. I'd like to know, as you obviously came more awake to this evidence, what was really compelling to you and uh, how difficult was it for you to make that decision to sign the petition and join the 3,500 other architects and engineers or whatever it was at the time you signed it? Well, I think signing the petition was, was a, a very easy act. What was difficult for me was understanding the mechanism that right in front of my eyes showed a building collapse. Now, I've been involved with projects where demolition has been part of the project. You know, you, you demolish a certain structure to make the real estate to build your new project. So I've been involved in, in uh, projects where we've had to talk to demolition contractors um, and they bring a lot of expertise into what they do. They have precise methods. Uh, obviously, they start off with our structural engineering calculations and our structural engineering drawings. And they look at the strong points and the weak points of any structure. And then they decide whether or not they're going to put explosives or weaken the building or the structure in certain ways as to make it collapse either vertically or in a certain direction. Uh, for example, in, in the north of England, um, there was a lot of uh, very tall chimneys at one point uh, after the Industrial Revolution and, and the, uh, the closing of the cotton mills and, and a lot of the Industrial Revolution had, had moved on. There was a lot of very tall brick chimneys that had to be felled. And so these demolition companies would come in and devise a method whereby they could literally make a structure collapse on its own footprint uh, and, and to avoid damage to neighboring properties or to avoid damage to uh, people or the environment, you know, power lines, all sorts of other external features that, that need to be preserved. And what I saw on WTC7 was the same. My initial thoughts after the initial shock were that it didn't have a plane fly into it. It didn't have any major debris dropped onto it from towers one and two, which are much taller, you know, twice as tall. 
Uh, and it looked to me as if having had the whole day of preparation that somebody had devised a method of demolishing Tower 7 in a safe manner in that World Trade Center complex. That's what I felt. Yeah, it looks exactly like a controlled demolition. So from what you're saying, if a, if a terrorist wants to try to bring down a, a building, um, it doesn't sound like just getting some jet fuel and lighting it around some uh, beams or around a column is going to do the trick. Because this is the excuse that the other side uses to justify NIST not sharing the input data on its computer models. I think there was even a court case that said, yeah, terrorists could get the information and figure out how to bring down a building. Well, really? You just start a fire and run? That's not really uh, complicated stuff to, to think of here, if that were true. Um, but, uh, but so it wasn't difficult for you to sign this petition. Um, but because you are such, uh, you know, so involved in the engineering profession and you're involved in these organizations, it's the uh, Institution of Civil Engineers and the uh, Institution of Structural Engineers over there in the UK. Uh, you said that when you, when, you, when you signed the petition, you said that you tried to talk to them or members about this. Can you tell us that story? What was it like trying to bring this information to your colleagues? Yeah. So, so before I started talking to my colleagues in the profession, uh, one of the things I did was to try and research exactly how these buildings were built and designed. I, I wanted to know the mechanisms that were looked at um, for the design of these multi-story, because having designed multi-story buildings myself, I know that there are vertical gravity forces and there are lateral forces that act on a building, either through the environment or through um, such events as planes hitting buildings. So my initial inquiry to myself was, let's have a look at the design. Let's have a look at what the original designers were thinking of and what load combinations, what load cases they considered. And so I, I researched and I found that the, the basic layout of the structure I found drawings of course in those days it was more difficult to find things online but eventually after several years I found drawings um, and, and you know what you'd call blueprints um, in, in the wider world uh, structural drawings that to me uh, to allow me to back work and look at the calculations or look at the thinking behind the original engineers uh, designs and to work out what made these buildings stand up and consequently what would make these buildings fall down and so what i found was that the world trade center buildings were actually robustly designed they had the, the the two towers one and two were designed as a external cage if you like which provided lateral stability and then there were an in there was an internal core although in the more conventional sense 
when I design a multi-story building, I design a building with a central core, usually the lift shafts or the stair shafts are designed as, as, as the main lateral stability uh, measure to stop a building from toppling over. And the vertical columns and beams or structures or trusses in the case of World Trade Center 1 and 2 uh, provide the means for transferring the dead loads and the live loads that are associated with each of the building floors or even the plant floors at the top of the buildings and taking loads down to the foundations. Now, as a structural engineer, the most efficient way of designing a building is to take the loads, the vertical loads, and also the any lateral loads that are that are being imposed on a building safely and in the most direct route down to the foundations where there's a lot more uh, stabilizing forces to, to get the loads down to the, um, to the ground in the most efficient manner. So what we do is we, as a structural engineer, we design systems uh, of braced or uh, beams, columns, uh, vertical, horizontal bracing systems, which allow the safest and easiest methods of transferring loads down to the to the foundations. So, in the case of um, uh, these three buildings, I looked at that, and I couldn't really see what would cause such major collapses in a building. Like I said before, as structural engines, we always build in redundancies. We have several different structural systems that allow different load paths uh, to occur such that if in the event of a collapse the worst case scenario is a partial collapse. It's unfeasible to design a building that can have a weakness such that it can completely collapse. It's just so I did my research over several years. I looked at drawings, I looked at calculations, whatever I could find on the internet. And then I went searching for answers. Uh, so the first port of call was to talk to my institutions and to talk to colleagues and to canvas opinions as to what other professionals like me thought about 9-11. And what I found was that there was a great reluctance of people to talk openly about um, what had happened. And I felt that this was another smoking gun that, that people were either afraid to put their professional necks on the line or wanting to stand up above the parapet and possibly criticize what, had, what they had seen on their TV screens and what had been reported and to show that there was 
something else going on. And I found that there was a great reluctance all the way through. I mean, I kept trying uh, for a, a number of years to try and find people that were like-minded, open-minded, as to understanding what had caused Because my overall concern was that as a structural engineer, my pencil and my pen is like a gun. I can design, I can do a calculation with an error that could potentially kill people. So I have to make sure that whatever I do as a calculation or as a drawing, as a, as a, as a design, has to be not only safe, but ultra safe with respect to not only structural engineering um, theory, but also the design codes that have been developed throughout many, many years with lots and lots of collaboration, professional collaboration. You know, we end, we end up with codes and standards which ensure that we as engineers do not have dangerous pens and pencils in our hands that could potentially kill people. No. So I, I've always taken this as a, almost like doctors have this do no harm policy. In my case, I've always felt the, the weight of uh, responsibility on my shoulders every time I put pen to paper and every time I've come up with a design concept. The first thing to do is to make sure that your design is safe. And so given all those things, it's very difficult to get people to understand that there was something else going on other than normal, safe, safety in design principles being put in hand. And I found it very galling that my professional institutions literally were closing the shutters on any discussion on alternative possibilities for the collapse of WTC 1, 2 and 7. I just found it very, very difficult to, I kept knocking on the door, but I found it very difficult to actually go in and find any number of people, any number of my fellow colleague professionals, even entertain the idea that this was something other than an act of terrorism. Did they debate you on it? Did they debate you and say that the NIST report is hunky-dory or did they just want to shut down discussion and bury the whole talk one, of it? I think one of the things that we have to consider is that as professionals, we are usually very tied up in our projects. You know, I myself spent many, many years working 12-hour shifts on the current projects that I was involved in. So <laughs> there's always a requirement to do projects quickly and faster than the last one and the one before. So there's always uh, 
a full agenda, if, if you like, in terms of my, my professional work. And I think my colleagues were the same. So when we are discussing uh, designs such as 9-11, it's all done in, in our, our own time. It's all done under our own steam. So having that open dialogue with people is not so straightforward. And I don't believe that many people uh, in my profession have actually even taken the trouble to look at the NIST reports, uh, to question the conclusions that they've arrived at. I, I think I'm probably one of the very few professionals, uh, professional structural engineers, that have taken the trouble to look at these reports and to critique them. Um, I found that there was very little opportunity in my professions, uh, in my institutions, to even debate openly um, the possibilities. Uh, and, and quite often one gets labelled a conspiracy theorist if one doesn't toe the, 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 the normal lines of inquiry, as it were. And, and the normal explanations that were given by governments that, hey, this is what happened, these are the reasons, and these are the reports upon which uh, this is based. So, yes, I, do, I, I did find a lot of frustration that my fellow professions weren't able to open up and discuss uh, alternative theories, alternative engineering possibilities as to what caused these buildings to collapse and to unfortunately uh, kill so many people. And I believe that people are continuing to die because of 9-11. The after effects, um, asbestos, other materials that were used in the buildings, the dust that was inhaled by all the the fire attendants on the day and subsequently all the people so i feel a lot of dread and um humanity within myself that there hasn't been sufficient open dialogue on a professional level to discuss and to put aside possible alternative explanations as to what happened. Yeah, well, hence why we have this show, hence why we have AE 9-11 Truth existing in the first place. And that's a point I always drive home, all of the cancers and illnesses that came to the first responders and other people around the site on September 11th, that is a direct consequence of those controlled demolitions. I'm not gonna mince words. Because of those controlled demolitions, that is why those people are dying and why they have trouble uh, you know, going up the steps without having to stop and take a few extra breaths. So for them, it's still happening all the time. It's why this issue is so important still 20 years after the event took place. And you mentioned uh, saying uh, that you know, your pencil is like a gun. You're, as an engineer, you have a responsibility because you can do harm if you don't do your job right, just like a, a doctor. It reminds me, uh, 
there was a video I saw, I think this was before 9-11 this happened, in Israel, there was a wedding, uh, and there was some, I think they were, they, they had him on, in the attic or something, I can't remember all the details of the story, but there was a huge wedding reception, people were dancing, and all of a sudden they fall right through the floor, and they captured it on video, it was a horrifying thing to watch, and I remember following this, because it had such an impact on me seeing the initial reports, and they, the authorities over in Israel went and got the engineer right away, grabbed him and, uh, you know, we're holding him to account. Um, you see this in other countries, but it just seems here in the United States, I mean, we point out obvious flaws in the NIST report and them trying to, uh, you know, give us an explanation for why these buildings came down, especially World Trade Center 7. I mean, they leave out important structural features and it's just like, oh, that's not a big deal. And people just go about their days, go about their ways and we don't get justice for all the people that died. We don't get the truth for that. So we've got some major problems here in the United States with accountability. Now, and a question I want to ask you, because this is interesting to me, you live over in Vietnam, you are out of the Western world. Um, and there's a different perspective on the other side of the world, given history and all of that. Do you find that the attitude about this issue, if it ever comes up, is any different? among the populace of countries like Vietnam or other places that you visited, because it is out of the, I don't know what you call it, the Anglo uh, empire or, or whatnot out of that alliance. Is there any difference? Well, well, first of all, I should say that I've only started living in Vietnam after I retired in, in October, 2020. Um, I have been associated with Vietnam for the best part of two decades. Um, my wife is Vietnamese, um, so you know, I met my wife virtually tw uh, 22 years ago uh, to the day uh, when I first started working in, in Vietnam on a project known as the first refinery project in, in Vietnam. Now, talking about the people you must uh, you must realize that Vietnam is a socialist republic. It is a one-party state. What the leaders say goes. There isn't much open debate. Uh, the freedom of press is quite limited. So, as a foreigner living here, or be you know six months at a time because that's what my work my visa allows me. Um, as a foreigner, one must be very careful not to rock any unnecessary boats um, in the system. You know, I am literally living here as a guest. Yes, I'm sitting in my own house, but, you know, in terms of uh, on paper, although this house belongs to me, it doesn't. It belongs to my wife, as it were. I, but, but I have sufficient uh, legal recourse should the, the unlikely event happen that my wife and I separated or whatever. So there's no issues in terms of living here. Um, it's just on a day-to-day -day basis, the locals must realize that whatever they say, whatever they do, has to concur with what the government views are. 
um, one could easily get thrown into jail just by reading the wrong textbook or just by you know, having a social discussion on Facebook or whatever, uh, raising certain um, opinions of their own. Um, it's very easy for somebody to be taken to the local police station or um, the prison and be locked away for years. Uh, and and what, you know, people who are watching this can go and look at the human rights records on Vietnam, which unfortunately isn't very good. But this is what the external view of of people are on what is happening within Vietnam and and for people like myself who have experienced it first time I can see that yes one must be sensible about what one says both in public and in private actually and that we have to respect the laws of this country the same as I have to respect the laws of the country where I live in, in the UK um, having said that, you know, the UK laws are or have been changing uh, and our freedoms have been challenged over the, certainly over the past two years in, 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 um, in a great way. Um, you can see that um, events like the truckers having a protest in Canada have had an impact on their own personal finances and their liberties. So I'm afraid that we are living in a very changeable world, a very strange world where we are being told one thing and our freedoms and expressions are being eroded away very, very rapidly. Uh, digital IDs, uh, mandates on vaccines all of these things have, have have come to the fore and even as we speak today there is a war happening in in europe in in eastern europe where the consequences are so great and disturbing as to make this discussion completely uh on the periphery if you like so events are unfolding Vietnam as a country, um, I would say, is a great country to live in. It's a very safe country to live in, by and large. Um, as long as one behaves in a manner that one is expected to, as a, uh, certainly as a foreigner, um, there is nothing that is going to affect my living here, uh, my freedoms. In fact, I, I feel that apart from the mask mandate that is still in force in this country, I feel that the country has developed a strategy of living with COVID rather than looking for a net zero COVID solution, such as has been happening in other countries like New Zealand or Australia. So I, I believe that in, in terms of individual freedoms, there are a lot. There, there, there's, a, there's a way of life here which is, which is extremely uh, good. The climate is certainly very nice and, and 
uh, I, you know, overall, the average person in the street is a very polite and friendly person. So that's my experience of, of Vietnam. I, I don't, and going back to the professional side, um, of course, language is always a difficulty for me, but um, professionally, any of my Vietnamese compatriots wouldn't dare question any narratives on events such as 9-11 for, for fear of reprisals from their own government as well as uh, potentially being you know, called conspiracy theorists, etc. outside of Vietnam. So I think they're very reserved in that way. I mean, they've just, it's just the mindset that comes with a socialist republic. You don't volunteer very... something unless you really have to. Yeah, and we're very lucky here. You know, I remember when uh, I first started doing this, I mean, one of the rebuttals that people would give you in talking about 9-11 would have nothing to do with 9-11. They'd say, oh, we've, we've got it the best here of anybody in the world here in the United States. We're the wealthiest country. We've got all these freedoms. The fact that you're talking about this means you're drunk on freedom. Remember that term they use, drunk on freedom. Um, yeah, and it, it is true. Right here, right now, at least at this point in history, the worst that anybody can do is call me a name, you know, call me whatever you want. Just uh, don't call me late for dinner, as they say. Um, and I can't get in, thrown in prison for bringing you the show every week. So that is very good. And that is something that we have to protect. And the way that we protect that is by talking about uh, events such as 9-11 when we are being lied to. So obviously lied to because if they can change physical reality, if they can tell you that the top part of a building can crush the lower part without slowing down, that it can crush through the path of greatest resistance, at essentially a free fall, they admit at the same time, they are changing the nature of reality. It is Orwellian for them to say these things and we have to challenge it because if they, if we, we let it slide on something as big as September 11th, then that line keeps on being redrawn and redrawn and then pretty soon we're living in one of those countries uh, that you're describing right now where we can't talk about uh, things like this. We can't let them silence us. So actually it is work like the work that we are doing here at AE 11 Truth that protects the freedom, that protects what we have here in the United States. And that's why I'm very proud of uh, the work that I do, the work that everyone on our staff does and the work that you're doing right now in speaking out about this important issue. And that's uh, why I think we're ultimately going to win in the end and preserve everything we love about this country here and in the Western world as well. And it's also important to keep on talking about this. I've said this before, because we have influence on other things that happen. You talk about 9-11, it's so provably false, the official story that we've been given. You put the seed in people's minds and who knows in what other ways it might manifest. They may look at some other event in a different way when it counts in the future. And uh, we may not uh, have certain legislation go forward uh, because people know about this and they know that uh, sometimes governments lie about important things. So that is why I think it's important that we keep on bringing this to the public, public's attention. Why do you think it's important that we keep on talking about the science of the controlled demolitions that we saw that day, even 20 years after? Uh, the, the short answer is truth. The long answer is obviously a, a, a lot more complex and, 
and, and difficult to, to get through to people. Truth must prevail. If somebody has done something which is an act of malfeasance, they should be brought to justice. There are people that have lost their lives. That's the most important thing. People have lost their lives. The families of those people deserve better. The families of those people deserve to know that their next of kin didn't die in vain. That what was committed as a, an act of genocide, and, and I do believe it's a personal opinion. Everything I say today is a personal opinion. But like I said, I couldn't get my professional institutions to be to get involved even in discussions. So my personal opinion is similar to those of, of 9-11 for truth, that there was an act of malfeasance. There was an act of something other than normal engineering that happened to bring these buildings down, as you say, in free fall, especially World Trade 7, uh, which, as it happens, is a trapezoidal shape on plan. And one of the things that, that ordinary non-structural engineers may not understand and appreciate is that if you have a structure that is non-symmetrical, i.e. on plan, uh, if it's not symmetrical as in this, this cube, that you have a non-symmetrical collapse occur. This is the laws of physics. So in the case of WTC7, being a trapezoidal shape, 100 meters in, in the long direction, in one, one edge to edge, and then 75 meters in the other, it's non-trapezoidal to start off with. And when you start looking at the structural elements that make up that building, there are internal columns, um, there are explanations given in the NIST reports like column number 79, number, 70, number 80 and number 81. These are three significant columns within the, the structure of the building that lost their strength due to a fire and that made this building collapse virtually vertically in free fall it's unbelievable. Technically, it's a no-no. There is no sane explanation given in those reports that justifies what happened to that building. That building was brought down through a controlled demolition of some sort. Professionally, I can't prove or disprove how they did it, but there was definitely a professional foul, as, as you would call it in a, in a game of football or soccer in, in your uh, American speak, that created the downfall of that building. As I said, about eight, nine hours after the initial alleged planes crashing into Towers 1 and 2. Trapezoidal buildings of a certain unsymmetrical shape do not fall vertically of their own completely vertically on their own footprint. It's unfeasible. And no matter how many calculations somebody can present to me, no matter 
technical argument somebody can, can put to me as a professional, uh, it is not possible. And there are other professionals, uh, for example, Professor Leroy Halsey, I think it is, who has done finer element analyses that I've gone back and looked at to disprove that what happened in the official NIST reports is a total nonsense. Yeah, that's so right. Is, uh, yeah, go on, carry on. No, please continue. Please continue. So, so this to me is 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 a smoking gun, and the truth matters. And we as professionals must continue to show evidence that the truth of what happened must be exposed. Those people who died, the families of those people who died, deserve to know the truth. That's a simple, that's a simple given. I feel for the countless numbers of deaths that have occurred. And I also feel for the countless numbers of deaths that subsequently, because of political reasons behind uh, going after the, the bad guys, if you like, the terrorists, the Islamic terrorists, a number of um, millions, I should say, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in places like Libya, died as a consequence. Every time I take a flight, I have to go through a security check. This is all perpetrated as a consequence of 9-11. My freedom to walk in and out of a, uh, an aircraft has been lost forever because of somebody making a political gain out of 9-11. Our freedom, uh, you say that, you know, you can openly have these discussions and so on. The world is changing by the day, by the minute. Our democratic freedoms and rights are being eroded like there's no yesterday. Yes, Orwell was absolutely correct in what he said in, 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 in writing 1984. And we are being forced down this and unless we as a collective the people the 99 percent we are the people unless we can stop being divided and ruled by the elites we will never get back whatever freedoms that are, that are being eroded by others by the people that our alleged leaders who are supposed to be acting on our behalf, not acting against our interests. Couldn't agree with Sorry you more on the, <laughs> No, that's fine. I couldn't agree with you more uh, about that. Um, and you mentioned the family members. That is exactly who we do this for and who we keep in mind with everything that we do. AE Nile Truth doesn't exist so that I can have a show up here, so that we can have a website, so that we can have a presence. We exist for that final goal, which is to get justice for the people who died on that day. Nothing more and nothing less. And my goal personally is for AE Nile Truth to not exist because we succeeded. We succeeded in getting the new investigation and getting the acknowledgement and getting the justice for all those people like Bobby McIlvain 
uh, who, who died on that day. And that, uh, that's everything that we do is for that goal and uh, really nothing else. So we have to speak up. We have, you're right about not being divided. That's why we avoid divisive political issues. We stick to what we know and uh, stick to the science because they can't really argue with us on that. They try to, they fail. They look very foolish in doing it. That's why they try to you know, get everyone off into these side issues and you see this happening politically, but we keep our eye on the ball here. And I know you are as well in the, in the work that you do and when you, when you do talk to other people about this. And uh, yeah, so thank you for signing the petition here. And thanks to everyone who has done that. We are basically out of time here. I'm just looking at the timer. And Anil, it is so great to meet you. Uh, you're a very good speaker. I'm hoping to see you speaking a little bit more now. Um, but thank you for putting your name on that petition and for coming on 9-11 Freefall today. Well, well, now that I am retired, I feel that the shackles of, of the institutions that I belong to are perhaps loosened um, and I can say things with a bit more freedom. But what I'd like to, to say to you is that until my last breath, I will continue to professionally challenge the official narratives on 9-11. I will do that freely of my time um, without, you know, recourse to any, any fundings and whatever. And I will gladly put myself out professionally to help those families in understanding and seeking out the truth and revealing the truth of what happened. And I will continue to do that until my dying day, if, if, if I can give you that sort of pledge. Um, and I'm more than happy to, to sign the, 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 the petition and to help raise awareness in whatever capacity I can, albeit, you know, I'm, I'm far away on the other side of the world from, from you guys. But of course, we are linked together by modern technology. And, and as long as I can openly uh, without being called a conspiracy theorist, stick to my professional education and experience and openly debate, I will continue to do so in terms of challenging the official narratives. Because I care ultimately for seeking out the technical truth in what happened. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's and a lot commitment. of people. Yeah, and that's the commitment of so many people here. Um, so many great people have come to us and, and added their name. We need more of them speaking out. So, Anil, thank you so much. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of the show. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.